Well, hi, everyone. I'm the substitute teacher today. My mind went back to the seventh grade at uh, Montgomery Hills Junior High School band class where we got word that a substitute teacher was coming, so we all traded instruments. <laughs> I remember I was playing the sousaphone that day. That was my only time playing the sousaphone. That's the big one, right? Anyway, I hope, uh, I hope you're not uh, going to prank me here. Good to be with you all. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I uh, did talk with uh, Matt on the phone briefly uh, today, and um, he, he wishes he could be with you, um, but he wants to, you know, maintain integrity and just walk uh, in wisdom as much as he can, as do all the elders, and so they thought it would be the best thing for him to... Uh, follow his own advice, and, uh, and so he was glad to do that, but he really wishes he could be here. Um, but I'm happy that I'm here. I always enjoy coming up here. And so uh, my wife actually is down in Florida right now visiting a couple of our kids and their families, so um, she couldn't be here even if she wanted to. But we have the opportunity to open God's Word, and I understand that you're on a series about um, uh, growth and your mission and uh, and going forward and, and things along those lines. And uh, as I was talking to Matt, we agreed that um, going forward, we have to do it together. Uh, this is really a, me a message about unity. It's about a walking together. Um, unity is key. It's indispensable to everything that we do as Christian believers. And um, our own church is, uh, is right now uh, in, the, in the beginning stages of a, a sermon series through 1 Corinthians. And so I'll, I'll just be up front with you. I didn't have time to prepare a specific message for you today. So, but this is one that I shared with the church um, uh, last week at, uh, at Covenant Life Church. Uh, and the title of it, if you like titles, is Division. Uh, or if you like to be more positive, you could call it Unity. That's the flip side. But that was the problem that Paul was facing. And so I'd like to begin by reading the uh, 10th through the 17th verses of 1 Corinthians. And Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to be ba to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the theme of this passage, uh, these eight verses is unity. As a matter of fact, the theme of the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians is unity. Unity is a big theme. It's a major issue. 
uh, or stated negatively, the problem is division. Because if you look again at Paul's words in verse 10, he says, I want you to agree, no divisions, be united, same mind, same judgment. All of that speaks of unity. It's the first thing that Paul brings up after his greeting. The very first thing he gets into after saying hello. And so it's important. It's actually very important. And so we need to talk about it. First of all, Paul makes an appeal here. He, he appeals. He appeals that they agree, that they have no division, same mind, same judgment. This appeal is a kind but an urgent plea. He's not bringing down the hammer, so to speak, but he is pleading with them. He's appealing to them, and his appeals, you might notice, is to brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, brothers, Adelphoi, but it really includes the ladies too, so it should be translated brothers and sisters. He's talking to family members, and he's appealing to them as a fellow brother, member of the same family. Now, you may realize that, that Paul was the one who founded this church, and in chapter 4, he's actually going to refer to himself as their father in the faith. Uh, so he has a special responsibility toward the Corinthians as their father in the faith. Humanly speaking, he's responsible for them coming to know Jesus Christ. So he could weigh in as a father. Those of you that are fathers know when you put on your father hat sometimes what that means. Okay, and some of you kids know what that means too. Okay, but but he's he's not doing that right now. He's appealing to them as a brother. But I'm just going to say this: fathers really like their kids to get along. Do you remember? You probably heard that. It, it's some kind of an old story about the father that had these sons that squabbled, and so what he did is he gathered together a lot of sticks and he tied them together in a bundle and he gave them to his sons and he said, "See if you can break it." And they they tried, but they couldn't break it. And then he 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 unbundled them and one by one he broke each stick. He just wanted to teach them that if you get along with your brothers and sisters. You can't be broken. But if you split off because of dissension and division and arguing, that you're prey to being broken. He's their spiritual father. I remember, uh, you know, I have uh, uh, three sons and a daughter. And uh, one of the goals my wife and I had was that our kids be friends. I'm really happy to say that they are friends. Um, that's one of the reasons that we wanted to uh, homeschool them. Because when I went to school, we were stratified into classes. And if you were a fourth grader, you didn't want anything to do with a third grader. They were babies, right? And so that kind of spilled over to the family. We didn't want that to happen. Now, there's ways to overcome that, and you don't have to homeschool to do that. But I remember when uh, our oldest son, Joseph, was taking a, one of those standardized tests. It was multiple choice, and you're supposed to pick out the synonyms. And the, uh, the word was friend. And then the other synonyms were things like pal, chum, brother. And he chose brother as the synonym. And he got it wrong. But we thought he got it right. Fathers love it when their children get along together. Oh, boy. And they're grieved when they don't. I used to tell my kids when they were squabbling, I said, okay, I'm going to give you a chance to work this out. If you don't, 
I'm going to help you work it out. You may not like that. All right. But even though he's a father, he appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a fellow brother. And it's, in other words, not just Paul's personal preference. He appeals as a brother in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, he's not saying, hey, hey, do me a favor and get along, will you? No, it's bigger than that. It's more important. But that's the appeal, very simple appeal. I want you to get along. But they had a problem. There were divisions in the church. And this is serious. Now, the fact that there are divisions and that divisions occur should not surprise us because we find division everywhere in our world. So I'd like to say some things about division in general. There are divisions everywhere. Ever since the fall, there have been divisions. Anywhere there are associations of people, there will be divisions. They usually stay hidden, but sometimes they pop out above the surface. They come out into the open. It can happen in schools, in jobs, sports teams. I mean, it's just anywhere there are people. And, And not only among people, but there can even be divisions within ourselves. We can have a divided heart. We can be of two minds about something and have a struggle to determine what's right and what's wrong, what's wise, what's foolish. Why is this? Why all this division? What's the reason? for? Why are there divisions in the church? Well, it's because the church is made up of people, people like you and me. But there are at least three reasons that contributed to this. One of the reasons there are divisions is because we're finite. That's to say we're limited. We don't see the whole picture. We act like we do, but we don't because we're finite. We're limited. Our perspective is limited. We're not omniscient. We don't have all knowledge and all. We're limited in what we know. That's important to keep in mind. We're finite, number one. Number two, we're weak. That is to say, we're mortal. We get tired, we get hungry, we get sick, and a lot of times when that happens, we get irritated and we get angry and we get annoyed and the, the problems come out, that, that our weakness, and that leads to the third thing, we are sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. Our flesh wars with the Spirit and the Spirit with our flesh. So we get angry, we act selfishly, even those people that are forgiven. The vestiges of sin remain. So, this is our problem. We are finite, we are weak, and we are sinful. But that's not all that there is to say about us. We're also saved, we're forgiven, we're sanctified, we're in the process of being further sanctified. We're beloved of the Father, we're in union with Christ. We have within us the Holy Spirit. We're objects of Christ's affection. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We are blessed and highly favored. So I could go on and on. I'm not trying to make this sound real negative, but there is a problem. We have these high ideals of love and truth and integrity and compassion and unity, and we all strive to live up to those ideals except when we don't. And when we don't, when we want what we want more than what God wants, it's when divisions occur. For example, I believe my wife is a gift 
from God, and I am called to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and yet how many times I've failed to do that. So one time early on in our marriage, I said to her, honey, it's not that I don't love you. It's that I love myself more. That's how I put it. That is one way of stating the problem. It's a problem I have to work on. Even now, 43, 44 years into marriage, I still have to work it. It's a lifelong project for all of us. If I don't work at it, then guess what? Division occurs in the marriage. Same thing in a church, same thing in a family, same thing at a job, same thing, okay? When I fail to live up to all that I profess, I can rightly be called a hypocrite, okay? If a hypocrite is someone who requires in others what he excuses in himself, then I think we can all be called hypocrites. One of the ways I put it is like, okay, if this represents all the knowledge I have, all the knowledge of truth, my ideals, okay, and then this represents how much I'm actually living out, the gap between what I know and believe and what I'm actually doing, that gap right there, that's called the hypocrisy gap. We strive to keep it as small as possible. We try to keep it within our own minds and hearts. But if it gets too big, others become aware. That guy's a hypocrite. If it becomes too big, we may even need to call the police. Okay? Every member of the human race qualifies as a hypocrite to varying degrees. We all deserve that label. So if you're talking to someone, you invite them to church, and they say, I'm not going to that church. It's full of hypocrites. And you can tell them, oh, please, by all means, come. You will feel right at home. (laughs) That's because we can see the hypocrisy in others. It's so easy to see. But to see it in ourselves, that's, that's much more difficult. So when I say to my brother, oh, brother, let me point out to you, you have a speck in your eye. It's so obvious. Oh, I will take it out for you. Jesus interrupts me and says, hey, uh, first, why don't you do something about that log that's in your own eye, you hypocrite? Jesus can say that. My point, the reason divisions occur in a church is because you and I are in the church. And speaking more broadly about Christianity through the ages, there have been many, many divisions among those who name the name of Christ. The theological term for division is schism. If you live in England, they say schism. But schism means division. It's actually the Greek word used in verse 10 for division, schismata. So that word tells us that there is an issue here and that divisions are to be regretted. But while regrettable, some divisions are actually justified. If divisions among Christians occur over essential doctrinal issues, what we call matters of essential truth, matters that touch on the gospel, matters that threaten the gospel, then those divisions can be justified. The Protestant reformers broke 
with the Roman Catholic Church over the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This was a major break, a major division. Martin Luther was the one who, we could say, spearheaded it, although he had no intention of dividing and breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. It grieved him. He deeply regretted it. Didn't want it to happen. He wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church, not split away from it. And he didn't like it when people started calling themselves Lutherans. He said, why would anybody call themselves after me, stinking bag of maggots that I am? But there is a Lutheran church today, so they, okay. All right, the point is, this doctrine of how a person becomes right with God, justification by grace, this was a matter that touched on the gospel itself. And so Protestants would argue that the division over justification was justified. I would agree with that. Even though I, in many ways I have respect for our Roman Catholic friends on this issue, I have to say no, no. But there may be other divisions that are not over matters of essential doctrine. Matters that the Bible doesn't regard as central to the gospel. Uh, you know, I used to pastor in Lancaster County, and um, I had great respect for the tradition of the Amish and the um, Mennonites that were there. But uh, among, the, uh, among the Mennonites, there were a lot of divisions, and the issue was over worldliness. Now, worldliness is a kind of a, it's one of those categories that it's hard to pin down, what really is worldly. Well, there were the, um, the, the Weaverland Mennonites uh, that, um, the, you know, the Old Order Mennonites and the Amish, the only way you can tell them apart is the Old Order Mennonites have black buggies and the Amish buggies are gray. But there were those Mennonites that got a little more worldly and they started driving cars. Uh, however, they painted the bumpers on their cars black because shiny chrome was worldly. They were called the Black Bumper Mennonites, the Weaverland Mennonites. And then there were those that were more worldly. They did not paint their bumpers black. They were a split off from the Black Bumper Mennonites. And then you have Mennonites whose clothing would use only buttons. But then there were ones that split off over that because they were more worldly and they used zippers instead of buttons. Okay, These are divisions that we would have to say shouldn't be divisions. Now, I'm not trying to say anything ne negative about my Mennonite friends because we could split over things that are not essential to the gospel. Whether we're in this church or that, we ought to have a heart of love toward all Christians, uh, but uh, those that prize the gospel as central have something precious that we need to all hold on to. Anyway, there's a nice little saying, you may have heard it, that I think sums this up. It's not precise, but it's helpful. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Isn't that nice? I like that. I like nice little things. I'll say it again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. The division Paul addresses here, it's not doctrinal. His appeal for unity is because of a problem of division and he gets more specific. He says, there's some evidence for this. And the evidence was that there were factious 
followers. A faction is a group that's broken off from another group. Factious is an adjective that talks about division. There were factious followers. There was a problem. There was some evidence. It had broken out into the open. There were two pieces of evidence. First one was there was quarreling. There's quarreling among you. There's bickering. There's contention. It's out in the, it was bad enough that it was public knowledge and Chloe's people, whoever they were, told Paul about it. So Chloe's people ratted out the Corinthians. And Paul didn't mind mentioning her name. And then he has to clarify further. He says, what I mean is this. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Cephas, of course, is another name for Peter. So, you have people that are lining up behind their favorite leaders. Now, was Paul actually quoting slogans that they were saying in Corinthians? All right, I follow Paul. All you Paul people line up over here. All you Peter people over there. No, probably that was his sarcastic way of pointing out how childish their behavior was. They're factious followers. Now, there's no evidence at all that the leaders condoned this. They did not. Paul certainly did not. He condemned it. But they were divided into different factions, different parties. There was the Paul party. There was the Apollos party. There was the Peter party. There was probably even a pity party, lamenting everything that was going on. It was common in the ancient world for students or disciples of teachers to line up behind their favorite teacher. That was a common practice in the world, the ancient world. But this is the church. This is not the world. So Paul has a solution for it, and his solution, it shouldn't surprise us, his solution is Jesus Christ. And so he answers the foolishness by asking three rhetorical questions. He says to them, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Those rhetorical questions, of course, prompt the answer, no. Is Christ divided? Paul says, no. Christ is one person and our unity is found in Him. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Christ was crucified for you. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. You were baptized in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the answer to these three questions, these rhetorical questions, if Paul wants to get at the solution, the answer is Jesus Christ. In in a sense, what he's saying is, all right, all right, let's put everybody in their proper place. There's Jesus, and then there's everybody else. Jesus is in first place. Everybody else is in a tie for last place. Okay? He has the preeminence. The first ten verses of this letter, we didn't read them, but if we read those first ten verses, you will find the name of Jesus Christ mentioned 11 times in 10 verses. 11 times in the first 10 verses, Paul says Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ. 11 times in 10 verses. My friends, that is what we call a clue. Okay? That is repeated for emphasis. That's where our hope is. That's where our salvation 
is. So how are we to relate to leaders? Well, Paul actually is going to take that up more in detail in chapter 3, but briefly what he says, how are we supposed to regard leaders? Well, we should view leaders as servants through whom we believe or our belief is strengthened. They're servants. They're servants. So is it all right to have leaders that you appreciate? Of course. We've all benefited from leaders. They inspire us. They, we, we, we esteem them. We should. There's nothing wrong with that. For example, personally, I, I really appreciate a, a pastor theologian named Sinclair Ferguson. I read everything I can by him. He's just great. I had the opportunity to meet him last year and, and talk with him. And, and uh, he's a pastor theologian. He's what I want to be when I grow up. But there's not, I'm running out of time, and I'm not <laughs> sure I'll ever get there. But, but it's all right to esteem and appreciate leaders. I could name others that have really benefited me. They are important. Leaders are important, but they are not all important. Okay? They are not ultimate. Only Jesus Christ is ultimate. He's the one without whom we, well, we, we can't do without Him. He's the divine Son of God. He's preeminent. He's the only one worthy of our worship and our highest devotion. So Paul downplays the fact that he's baptized people. You see that here. I, you know, Christ didn't send me to baptize. Is he denigrating baptism? No, no, not at all. Baptism is important. But whoever baptized you is relatively unimportant. Were people here in Corinth putting too much emphasis on who baptized them? They probably were. But what's important in baptism is not who baptized you. What's important is the faith that led you to be baptized. What's important in baptism is what baptism represents. Baptism represents the gospel. Jesus died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose from the dead. Through faith in Him, we've died with Christ to our sins. I'm crucified with Christ. We're buried in a watery grave. And immediately we come up out of it to walk with Him in newness of life. This is a wonderful dramatization of the gospel message. Baptism is important in whose name we're baptized into because it means we belong to Him. Those of you that are baptized into Jesus Christ have a spiritual mark upon you. A spiritual mark. You're marked out for Christ. You're named by the name of Christ. So Paul's not trying to diminish baptism. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He's trying to emphasize what he was commissioned to do. What was his calling? What was his great honor? And then he adds these words at the end. He says, he sent me to proclaim the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, be emptied of its power. Now, this is a very important statement because it's going to segue into some important things that Paul is going to say in the rest of the chapter because he's got more to say about divisions. And I have a little bit more to say about it too. He said, Christ sent me to proclaim the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, robbed of its power, made 
futile? The cross of Christ has power. The cross of Christ has great power. What kind of power? Physical power? Political power? Military? No, spiritual power, which is a greater power than all those powers. It's a spiritual power that can do amazing things. The cross of Christ has the power to transfer you from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. The power, the power is able to change your eternal destiny from hell to heaven. That's real power. That power can transform your character and affections from someone who is hostile or indifferent toward God into someone who loves God. It's the power of a new creation. It's the power to deliver you from condemnation. It's power to forgive your sins. The power to free you from bondage to sin. The power to take away fear and anxiety and replace it with peace. The power to take away despair and give you hope. This is the power that comes through the cross of Christ. But it's a power that can be hindered. By what? Paul says it can be robbed of its power, the cross of Christ, by words of eloquent wisdom. What? Well, maybe another way to say it is showy rhetoric. That was another problem that they had in Corinth. Now, Paul's not opposed to rhetoric in general, the use of speech to get across a point. He just used three rhetorical questions, okay? So he's not opposed to rhetoric. What he is opposed to is eloquent wisdom in the form of showy rhetoric, people who just want to impress with what they're saying. In other words, they're not into the content of what's being preached. They're into the actual act of preaching. It's, it's like uh, someone that can turn a pretty phrase. Now, I'm a, I'm a word guy. I'm, in, in, I'm into words. I read a lot. I do word games on my little phone that keep me, I, you know, I get in these word game tournaments. I'm a word guy. I love words. If I want to use words just to tell a fancy, I can tell stories, okay? Well, that's nice. As a matter of fact, a lot of my preaching used to be I'd, I'd tell stories. People loved it, but they never got it. I got to remember that story you told, but could you remember the point that was of truth? No. It's like the woman that came up to the pastor after the message and said, your illustrations need a sermon. Okay. That, that was a corrective for me. The point here is you might be able to tell good stories. You might be able to impress a crowd, but if you are missing the cross of Christ, you are robbing that gospel message of its power. Now, he's going to develop this in the next section. But what Paul is getting at here is that the preaching of the gospel is the message of the cross. He's talking about not just Christ, but the cross of Christ. Because the true preaching of the gospel is the message of a crucified Messiah. Now, hear me on this because this is very, very important. 
He'll go deeper into the divisions that are there. I mean, he's just basically kind of talked about division in a very general and almost, you might say, a surfacey kind of way. All right, there are divisions. I appeal to you. Be unified. Start thinking alike and stop squabbling. No more quarreling. No more I follow this or I follow that. Problem solved, right? No. Divisions go a little bit further. There are the mask wearers and those that think you shouldn't wear them. There are, the, there are people who think if you don't wear a mask, you are imperiling my health. And there are those that say if you wear a mask, you are turning into a lemming that's going to walk off the cliff when the government says to do the next thing. And we've got people that are woo, really divided on these things. We've got people that are Christian people, really divided on political things. We've got people that are, re- I mean, the, deb- the divisions can go very deep. And they're very troubling. We see it in our culture and society. So what's the answer? Hey, just stop being divided and all get to, let's all, you know, come on, people now, love one another. Everybody hug your brother, come and love one another right now. And the problem solved. No. Uh, the problem's not going to be solved for Christians unless we go deeper into this. So it's the message of the cross. The gospel is the answer just like in anything else. But, you know, think with me right now. It's a message of a crucified Messiah. Crucified Messiah. That is what you call an oxymoron, okay? It's like jumbo shrimp, okay? Crucified Messiah. This is the Jewish idea of Messiah. The Messiah, translated Christ, that's what we're talking about, Hebrew Messiah, Greek Christ, okay? That Messiah figure is a kingly figure after the manner of a King David, a warrior king. The Jews were looking for a Messiah who would come and deliver them politically from Rome. The Messiah was going to come with a sword. The Messiah was the most powerful. Again, think King David, the most powerful king Israel ever had. He dominated every enemy from Goliath on down. There was never a king so successful as the warrior King David. And David is a type of Christ. He foreshadows Christ as Messianic King. Had Jesus wanted to, at the point of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I could now call upon 12 legions of angels. A legion was 6,000. He could have called 72,000 angels. Any one angel could have kicked the butts of all of those who came to arrest them, plus Pilate, plus the entire Roman legion, Jesus could have done that had he wanted to. He could have come at that time, he could have, he could have obliterated every force that opposed him and reestablished righteousness on earth at that time. But he did not. Instead, he surprised everybody by subjecting himself to the earthly rulers, both secular and religious, and he allowed himself to be captured, falsely accused, shamefully treated, wrongly judged, condemned, and crucified. Why did he do that? It was because his substitutionary and sacrificial death paid the penalty for our sins, for yours and mine, making it possible for us to be reconciled to God. He took enemies and reconciled them to God and to one another. It is correct to say 
that your sins and mine put Christ on the cross. Now, when this message of a crucified Messiah begins to take hold on you, and you see this and you believe this, that you're not only forgiven, but you come to understand why he did it and what it took for him to do it, you not only appreciate that you're forgiven, but you begin in your heart to be humbled before this God who laid down his life so that you could be reconciled to him and to one another. We can love God now, and we can love our neighbor. Now, the problem with this message of a crucified Messiah is it looks very weak, and it looks foolish. And that's why Paul says, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. We're called fools for Christ. We look like idiots. We look, crucified Messiah, are you kidding? That's weakness. Throughout the history of the church, there have been people that despised Christianity because of its weakness. Friedrich Nietzsche was a philosopher of the late 19th century. He despised Christianity for this very reason. He perceived it to be weakness. What's not understood or what's not believed by these people is that the cross of Christ is not the end of the matter, but it's actually a means to an end. The end point will be the glory of a messianic king who through weakness and humility ultimately triumphs over all. You see, Jesus will return and he will return in glory and this time he will bring those angels along with him. But it won't be like his first coming. When he returns, he will come in judgment. The day of the Lord will be a fearful day of reckoning. Now, Christ Jesus made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, and not just any kind of death, death on a cross. But because of that, the Father has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee, may bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, my friends, by faith, we see this now, and we voluntarily bow our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We may do this now, but know this, one day, every knee will bow before Him. So right now, we follow a crucified Messiah. We look foolish. We look weak. This is the way the world looks at us. But be of good cheer. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. The world just doesn't realize it right now. What really is the answer to divisions? It's not going to be when I win my argument about critical theory over your argument about critical theory. It's not going to be when the government does what I want it to do instead of what you want it to do. No, the, the divisions are going to be healed as we more and more come under the lordship of a crucified Messiah 
walking in the same kind of humility that our Lord Jesus Christ displayed. Because God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. In other words, Paul is going to argue that the answer to divisions ultimately is when we get kind of underneath and behind what we're puffing our chests out about and start to take up the mantle of a crucified Messiah. Yeah, it's, it's a slow and a painstaking way to go. It's been a long time and it's probably going to be longer still. But this is the way that God has put forth. We must do our best to represent Him and proclaim Him by how we live and what we say. So this is the key to unity. It's Jesus Christ. But we have to define a little bit more carefully what we mean by that. We're talking about the power that comes through the cross of Christ, the power and lordship of a crucified Messiah. As you move forward in your church life, let this be your watchword. We follow a crucified Messiah. Yeah, we may look dumb to the people on the outside, but maybe we're not so dumb as they think we are. Okay, Because this is the wisdom of God and this is the power of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless Christ Church of Mount Airy. Lord, also bless Matt and his family. Keep him healthy, Lord. I pray, Lord, for the leaders of this church that they would be unified. And I pray for the people of this church that they would also be unified around this message of a crucified Messiah. How kind and gracious you are, Jesus, to come and to die so we could be reconciled to God. Help us take this message in the lives that we live and the words that we speak that you would be glorified and we draw other people to follow you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.